0: Uh, why are we doing Habakkuk? Well, why not? It's there in the Bible. Um, but uh, uh, Habakkuk is a great little book actually and uh, it will have a lot to teach us today. That's where we uh, do three talks on it and particularly it really looks at uh, the problem of suffering and evil which is something that I think everybody grapples with and that you get questions about that sort of thing quite a lot from a lot of people. So it's a great little book. Let me just pray for us again that uh, God will speak to us. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would work in us now by your Holy Spirit, that as we hear your word, as we think about it, uh, as we've heard it read already, that your word will be at work in us. And we pray that you would help us to believe it and to obey it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Habakkuk, as I said, deals with the problem of evil and... Uh, the problem with evil, of course, is only too obvious. All you have to do is turn on the news and watch the news at night. Apparently it's said that at any particular time in our world there are 25 to 30 wars being fought at any one time. And of course, you turn on the news, there's terrorism, there's rape and burning and pillaging and killing child soldiers and the list could go on. And uh, we see almost nightly suicide bombings as innocent men, women and children are blown up by fanatics. Uh, and of course, there's, thank goodness, no war in Australia, for which I'm very thankful, uh, but there's drunkenness and violence and road rage and gangs and drugs and prostitution and child abuse and the list could go on. Uh, that, of course, is all though just the problem of evil out there That you see on the news, but it's quite different when the problem of evil actually strikes you personally. So when somebody treats me wrong, when somebody treats you wrong, then we really begin to understand the problem of evil. Uh, It might be that you get attacked on a train or on the street or uh, on a bus or whatever and people might threaten you or take your wallet. It might be that your relationship fails. It might be that You fail at university in your studies or you fail in work or in something else in life It might be that somebody who was meant to be your friend backstabs you or even at church. Of course, that may happen. Uh, You might be in a situation which is going wrong at the moment and you've prayed about it over and over but nothing seems to be changing. So things do go wrong for us all the time. And when somebody doesn't treat me right, then of course I'm very aware off the problem of suffering and evil. And I begin to ask questions like, well, why did God allow that to happen? Why didn't he stop it? He could have stopped it, couldn't he? Why didn't God do something? Well, I don't know if you feel like that when things have gone wrong in your life, uh, but I, I certainly ask the question, why did God allow that to happen? Habakkuk lived 2,600 years ago and these are exactly the sorts of questions that he was asking So as we'll see over these next three talks, Habakkuk engages in this dialogue with God and he asks God the sort of questions like why does God allow evil to flourish? Why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't he do something about it? Surely he could. But the possible answers to those sort of questions are actually quite frightening if you're a believer. Does God actually not stop those things because he can't? Is he actually not all-powerful and unable to stop violence and evil? Or is it that God can stop it but doesn't really care? So is it almost like God is immoral? He's able to stop the violence and wickedness but he doesn't. Well if he's not immoral and if he's not unable to stop the evil, how do you explain it? In 2004 there was a tsunami, as you would know, that killed a quarter of a million people And one reporter afterwards wrote this. He said, if God is God, he is not good. If God is good, he is not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. So that's the problem that Habakkuk is actually dealing with. And for him, it's not a problem out there, it's actually a problem right in front of his face that he is dealing with. So let's have a look then at this Old Testament book of Habakkuk and see what the Word of God has to teach us from it. Uh, First of all, though, point number one, if you've got your outline there, I want to look briefly at the background of Habakkuk. Uh, Verse one, and um, as Chris has said, I'll be using the ESV, um, verse one says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And there's nothing else that the Bible has to tell us about the person of Habakkuk himself except what you read there. Uh, which by the way I think is interesting in that it tells you that the question that modern people often ask that's in commentaries and in Bible colleges about knowing all about authors, that's not really a question the Bible asks very much. The Bible doesn't seem too interested in the author as such. It seems more interested in what he has to say because as that verse says, what he has to say is the word of God. Verse 1 tells us that the book of Habakkuk is the word of God. This is what the prophet saw or received. And so we are to hear it, to receive it. That's the very word of God. We do know a little bit though about the times in which Habakkuk lived. Uh, he mentions, we'll see in a moment, the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were a, a superpower for only a short time. So we know that this probably occurs somewhere around the end of the 7th century BC, which is why Habakkuk's known as a 7th century prophet. So up to this point, God's people have been living in the Promised Land. Uh, Most of you will know the Old Testament. I presume that you know that God's people in the Promised Land did not live his way most of the time. And about a 100 years before Habakkuk's time, the superpower of the day, the Assyrians, came and defeated the 10 northern tribes and booted them out of the land. So that's happened more than a 100 years before Habakkuk. So in his time for the last 100 years only the tribe of Judah has been left and Judah also hasn't really taken to heart what has happened and haven't been living God's way. Now we're not exactly sure when Habakkuk uh, wrote this prophecy or received it but we think probably the last decade of the 7th century. So somewhere between 610 and 600 BC is our guess of when Habakkuk spoke. Now, the extra headings in your Bible, you probably know, are not actually the Word of God. They're not the Bible. Uh, However, in this case, the headings in your Bible are probably quite helpful to um, lay out the structure of the book. So the structure of the book is basically as follows. In verses 2 to 4, you'll see Habakkuk makes his first complaint. In verses 5 to 11, we get God's answer, his first answer to that complaint. The rest of chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, is Habakkuk's second complaint. And then chapter 2 is basically God's answer to his second complaint. And chapter 3, finally, is a psalm. An uh, interesting example of a psalm outside the book of Psalms, which is Habakkuk's response to what God has said. So let's dive in and have a look at it. Let's uh, look, uh, read again Habakkuk's First complaint, verses 2 to 4. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralysed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. The Habakkuk's complaint here to God is about the problem of evil and the problem of evil right on his doorstep. So he speaks about violence there in verse 2 and again in verse 3. He speaks, verse 3, about iniquity, wrong, destruction, strife, contention. And the result of all that evil amongst the people of Judah, he says in verse 4, is that the law is paralysed, it hangs limp, it's useless. There's no point, almost, he's saying, having the word of God if no one's going to listen to it or do anything about it and believe it and obey it. And so there's no justice, he says. Verse 4, the wicked get their way, they prevail against the righteous. So there are those in Judah who are righteous, who trust God, but the wicked outnumber them. And their violence and evil is oppressing those who trust in God and God seems to be doing nothing about it. And Habakkuk says, verse 2, he's been long in prayer crying out to God to do something about it, to take action, to stop the wickedness, to stop the evil and it seems like God hasn't heard his prayers and he hasn't acted. Habakkuk's saying to God, as it were, God, you're not listening, you're not doing anything, why won't you stop this evil? Is it because God's unable to stop it? Is it because he doesn't care? Well, if that's not the case, why doesn't he do something? Well, I wonder what you do when it seems like God doesn't answer your prayers. Habakkuk's long been praying to God. He's saying God is not answering his prayers. If God seems, if it seems like God is not answering your prayers, does it make you think sometimes maybe, maybe God's not really there? Habakkuk wants to know why God hasn't done something about the evil that is so prevalent in Judah. And his complaint though is really an expression of faith. He's taking his complaint to God in prayer. He's pouring out his heart, praying to God in trust, asking why God allows evil to flourish, why he hasn't done something about it. And I take it then that that is a model. That is what we should do as well. Uh, We should take our prayers to God. We should keep coming to him in prayer. We can take our complaints to God uh, if we're struggling with whatever it is we're struggling, we can take it to God. That's an act of faith as we pour out our hearts and our complaints to God. And if God doesn't seem to be answering your prayers, we need to keep trusting him because he has heard our prayers. And the answer, of course, may not be yes, it may be no, or it may be yes, but not yes. And we might not know God's reasons for not answering our prayers straight away, but... He knows the reasons why. He knows what he's doing and why he's doing it. Nevertheless, Habakkuk still has this problem. Why is God allowing such evil and violence and wickedness to go on in Judah and isn't doing anything about it? Why hasn't God answered his prayers? And basically God's answer to his prayer will be yes, will be that he'll do something about it, but not quite yes. So let's look at Habakkuk's, uh, Sorry, God's answer to Habakkuk's first complaint. God's answer, he says himself, is very unexpected, probably the last thing Habakkuk would have wanted to hear. In verse 5, God starts by saying that to him. He says, look among the nations and see, wander and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if told. Now, the verbs there are actually in the plural. So God is saying this not just to Habakkuk, but he's actually saying it to all people, to all the people of Judah. And he's commanding, look, see, wander, be astounded. Why? Because God is going to do something about the problem of evil, but something that they would never believe. Although, of course, they do need to believe it. So what is God's unexpected answer? What will he do? Verse 6, he says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. So God is saying in verse 5, look among the nations, I'm raising up the nation of the Babylonians. The God of the nations will raise up this nation to punish his people in Judah who are wicked. And look at what he says about them in verse 6 again. He says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty or impetuous nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. The Babylonians, he's saying there, go through the earth in conquest, seizing dwellings not their own, conquering all before them, as they will conquer Judah. But God is saying he will raise up this fearsome, dreaded, as he says, superpower where the Babylonians will conquer all before them sweeping away all opposition. And who made the Babylonians a superpower? Well, God did, this says. He raised them up. Who gave them their strength and might with which they conquered much of the world around them? God did. They sweep across the earth, this says, in conquest. And they don't just paralyse the law, as Habakkuk complained about his own people in verse 4. They don't just paralyse the law, but as the NIV says in verse 7, they are a law to themselves. And Habakkuk complained in verse 4 that justice never goes forth but God will bring the Babylonians, verse 7 says, whose justice goes forth from themselves. So they also don't look to God for justice, they just make up their own justice and law. And Habakkuk complained in verses 2 and 3 about the acts of violence in Judah and this says God will bring the Babylonians who, verse 9, the NIV says are all bent on violence or are coming for violence. So what is God's answer to Habakkuk's first complaint? What will he do about the wickedness and the violence that Habakkuk sees all around him in Judah? Well, he'll bring against them a nation who will outdo them in wickedness and violence, who will conquer them, who will sweep all the way before them and crush them in battle, a nation who are even more violent and more wicked. God is raising up the fearsome, dreaded Babylonians who will punish the people of Judah. And nothing will stop them. Have a look at how they're described in verse 8. He says, Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce or keen than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. So here's a picture of an all-powerful, swift, conquering army that just sweeps everything before it. Their horses swifter than leopards, keener than wolves, swooping in like an eagle, swift to devour. That's interesting, that phrase, swooping in like eagles to devour, comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 28, which are the covenant curses. So it's a hint, the covenant curses are coming upon the people of Judah for their evil. The Babylonians will sweep all before them and nothing can stop them and with great irony at the end of verse 9 God says they gather captives like sand. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and now in what's almost like a reversal of those promises he says Abraham's descendants will be held prisoner and captives more than the sand on the seashore. Nothing will be able to stand in the way of this all-conquering Babylonian army. Verse 10 says, At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Kings and rulers are swept away before them. The Babylonians scoff at them, laugh at them. They laugh at fortifications built against them. They easily get around them. They just sweep through like the wind as if there's no opposition at all. Nothing can stop them. So God has heard Habakkuk's prayer. He will answer his prayers but not the way he expected. He will deal with the problem of evil but in a very unexpected way. He'll stop the violence and wickedness in Judah by bringing an even more violent and wicked foe against them who will outdo them in violence and wickedness and crush them. And indeed that's what happened. The Babylonians came not long after Habakkuk said this and conquered the people of Judah. In 597 BC and again in 586 BC the Babylonians came and conquered the people of God In 586, they razed Jerusalem to the ground, destroyed the temple and took God's people into exile and so this word of God came true exactly as Habakkuk said. But of course, verse 5 must also be true that it's very unexpected. Will God stop the evil? Yes, by a nation that is even more evil and violent To put it in perspective, it might be in our time that we're quite distressed by the violence and wickedness we see in Australia. Australia's becoming more and more pagan. Worse and worse things are happening, I don't need to tell you that. And We might be distressed about it and praying to God that he might do something about this and stop it and it would be like God's answer would be he'll raise up North Korea or Iran or a coalition of terrorists to come and crush Australia to get rid of the wickedness not exactly the answer to our prayers that we'd be hoping for. That's what's happening in Habakkuk. Now, of course, it's not like God's stupid. He knows the Babylonians are godless and evil. At the end of verse 11, he describes them as guilty men whose own might is their God. So they are guilty for their violence and wickedness. They are guilty for not worshipping God and worshipping themselves. But then isn't that a problem? how can God solve the problem of evil with even more evil by raising up the even more evil Babylonians? Which brings us then to Habakkuk's second complaint. His second complaint in verses 12 to 17 begins with God's character. In verse 12 he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgement. And you, O rock, have established them for a proof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So look at how Habakkuk describes God there. He says, first of all, that he's ever everlasting, he's eternal. God is the one who always is and will be. He says he's the holy one. God is perfect in holiness and righteousness. He calls him the rock, an image that means he's immovable, unchangeable. And since God is eternal and since he is unchanging, Habakkuk knows he'll keep his promises. So he knows that he'll keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He will not wipe out his people and so Habakkuk says we will not die. He knows that the Babylonians can't be coming to wipe them out but they are coming instead because God has ordained them for judgments and reproof. It's a temporary punishment. But also he says God is the Holy One. Habakkuk said himself in his first complaint he was sick of looking at the violence and evil that were all around him but God, he says, his eyes are too pure to look on evil at all. He cannot tolerate wrong. Which is a great reminder to me and uh, to you next time we're tempted to sin that God cannot tolerate evil and sin and cannot even look at it. But it's a problem for Habakkuk. If God cannot tolerate evil, how can he use the Babylonians to punish his people? So Habakkuk continues in verse 13. He says to God, why do you idly look at traitors, the treacherous, and the silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And I think the idea there is that the wicked within Judah are more righteous than the evil Babylonians, so how can God use them to punish his people in Judah? God himself said they're bent on violence. Their own might is their God. How then can he allow them, the Babylonians to flourish and do their evil and just seemingly get away with it? Verse 17 at the end of the chapter says they are mercilessly killing whole nations. It's like genocide. Why doesn't God stop that? How can he allow that sort of evil to continue? It seems to Habakkuk that we are like bugs to be squashed. Verse 14, he says, He make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his nets. He gathers them in his dragnet. Well, verse 14 is probably by far the most severe thing that Habakkuk says to God in his complaints and uh, may well be going too far there. He's saying God has done this. He's made us like fish in the sea to be caught like crawling things to be squashed. The captives of the Babylonians, he says, take people off with hooks like fish. And in fact it's literally what they did, taking their prisoners off with hooks. And the Babylonians rejoice in their conquests. They worship their own might. At the end of verse 15 he says, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnets. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So this wicked oppressor catches as many people as he wants, gleefully conquering and slaying, worshipping idols, worshipping himself in the process. It's like oppressors do whatever they like. They just get away with it, kill as many people as they want. How can God allow evil regimes, tyrants, abusers, criminals to do such things? Why doesn't he do something about it? How long then, Habakkuk asks, will God stay silent? Verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? Will God let the Babylonians just go on with their evil forever? How can he use such a violent and wicked people to punish the people of God? What's the answer? Well, we'll find out after lunch. Well, where does that leave us so far then for chapter 1? Well, three things I want to say and I want to start with God. So first of all, it's true that God cannot tolerate evil. God is indeed eternal and powerful and holy. Habakkuk knew it and of course we know it and we need to know it. God will keep his promises. He is holy and good. He does hate sin and evil and he will punish it. We should fear God and earnestly repent ourselves, but the point here is God cannot tolerate evil and he will punish it. And so we need to trust God, that he will deal with the problem of evil. Which brings me to my second point, that God knows what he's doing. God's answer to the problem of evil was not at all what Habakkuk was expecting, So it would have been a massive surprise that God would use this evil nation of the Babylonians to conquer the people of Judah and that that was God's answer to how he would deal with the evil amongst Habakkuk's people. God's plans are often bigger then than we might expect or imagine. And we do things in our world from our limited perspective. We don't have God's unlimited, all-knowing, all-powerful perspective. We only know what God tells us in his Word. So we might not know why God is doing something at the moment in the world or why he's doing something in our own life. Why doesn't God stop the terrorism, the child abuse, the wars, the domestic violence, the crime? Well, I don't know why. But I need to trust God that he knows what he's doing, both in the world and with me personally. I need to be patient and to keep trusting God that even if everything seems to go wrong around me, God knows what he's doing and why he's doing it. I don't have his perspective. Of course, I can keep praying like Habakkuk does. I can bring my complaints to God even. I can complain to God. I can pray to God. I can ask him to stop the violence and the wickedness. But even if he doesn't seem to be answering my prayers, I need to trust that he knows what he's doing and why he's doing it and to keep praying. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, uh, writes the following it's an extended quote, so bear with me. It's a great one, though. Uh, Tim Keller says, quote, Many people have to admit that most of what they really needed for success in life came to them through the most difficult and painful experiences. Some look back on an illness and recognise that it was an irreplaceable season of personal and spiritual growth for them. And he goes on to say, though none of these people are grateful for the tragedies themselves, they wouldn't trade the insight, character and strength they've gotten from them for anything. With time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life. Why couldn't it be possible then, he says, that from God's vantage point there are good reasons for all of them? He says, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. I think Tim Keller is spot on. He's hit the nail on the head. God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. We don't have his perspective. We are not omniscient like him. God knows what he's doing and why he's doing it. We might not like what is going on in the world around us. We might not like what is happening in our own life. But God has his reasons for doing it. He knows what he's doing and why. And so we need to trust him. And we express that trust in prayer to God. So I need to trust God, that's my second point, that even if everything seems to be going wrong, he knows what he's doing and why he's doing it. And third and finally, I want to say that God has done something about evil, of course. And what he did was very unexpected. I think for you or me, we'd expect God to come blazing into the world and to smash evil and violence and wickedness and to get rid of it. That's what we want. But there's a problem with that that we often overlook. That when God comes blazing into the world to smash evil and wickedness and do away with it, he will do a complete, thorough and total job. He will root out every little bit of evil in the world when he does that. He will punish every person for every wrong thing that they have done, every wrong word they have said, every wrong thought they have had, which then of course includes you and me. So if we want God to come blazing into the world to stop violence and evil, and he will one day, well, it will include our wickedness and evil. And God will do that one day, but first he did something very unexpected. He came to earth as a man, born into our world, God the Son, experiencing hunger and thirst and pain and suffering. And he allowed violent and wicked men to take their evil and violence and pour it out on him, to mock him and flog him and spit on him, beat him and nail him up to a cross and kill him. The eternal almighty God of the universe allowed evil and wicked people to do that to him. Which has got to be the last thing you'd expect for how God would deal with the problem of evil. And how does that deal with the problem of evil? Well, God will bring judgement. He will do away with evil, including, as I said, every person who has ever said or done or thought anything wrong. But first he gave Jesus to, to die on the cross to take our violence and evil on himself so that the punishment that we deserve for our wickedness is paid for in full by his death on the cross. The cross deals with the problem of our evil. And it also shows what God thinks of violence and terrorism and abuse and crime. He takes it so seriously that he gives his only son to die for it on the cross. And the cross shows that evil has been defeated for all time. And one day it will be done away with. And so God has brought forgiveness of sin. If you trust in Jesus, I hope everyone here does, you are forgiven your sins. And it means that we repent of our evil one person at a time. Jesus' death on the cross before the judgement comes means that God has declared amnesty so that people can receive forgiveness of their sins and turn back to God and change the evil one person at a time. So Jesus' death shows us that God has done something about the problem of evil and something that cost God dearly. Often we want to know why God is doing what he's doing either in the world or in our own personal life. And uh, I don't know if you are going through something at the moment, I don't know why God is doing that to you. But he knows why and he has his reasons for it. And he knows what you're going through and in Christ he knows what it is to suffer. God has suffered in Christ and he loves us, he loves you and gave Jesus to die for you so you could be forgiven your sins and so that evil could be brought to an end. And so I want to say even if things aren't going right for you at the moment, keep trusting Jesus. Keep trusting God's promises. Keep turning to him in prayer. God knows what he's doing and he knows why he is doing it and he loves you and gave Jesus to die for you. Let me pray and uh, then I believe we will have some uh, questions which I should have mentioned before. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to fear you and to shun evil. We thank you so much for giving Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins. We thank you for your forgiveness of our sins. Please help us to trust you even when we don't understand why things are the way they are. We thank you that you are sovereign and in control of all things that happen. We thank you for your holiness and your almighty power. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Well, I should have mentioned before that uh, we'll have a question time. So um, what I always like to say in question time is don't be shy. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Uh, If you've got a question that's been in your mind as I've been speaking, it's likely that about 10 other people have it and they'll be glad that you asked it for them. So any questions or comments, please feel free. Go for it. Does it not mean that the God of love concept is thrown out the window? Sorry, I just missed that. The way that God brought in the Babylonians to punish the people of Judah. There's
1: no love in that.
0: Um, That's a good question and a really hard one. Um, I guess you could ask the same thing of How can a loving God send people to hell? Um, Really, it's almost asking, how can a loving God judge at all? Um, I guess there's a couple of things that I could say to that. Uh, The first is the Bible always balances up God's love and his justice and I guess these days we hear a lot about God's love um, but often divorced from his justice. But the two go together and I'll say more of this this afternoon. What we are saved from is God's judgment, but we thoroughly deserve it. So I think the problem that we often have is that we don't understand how utterly sinful we really are. It would be absolutely just and right for God to bring the Babylonians against us, to send us to hell, to judge us for our sins. God would be completely right and just to do that. The fact that he has mercy on some of us at all to save us from his judgment is absolutely amazing. Any other questions or comments? Please don't be shy.
1: Thank you very much for your great um, lecture so far. Um, Sometimes when I pray about a certain issue I remind God that he's got eternity on his side. I don't have that long here. And um, I'm just thinking if we're praying for say um, a family where the dad's an alcoholic or a violent person, and we trust God to answer our prayers and, and He'll do that in His time. A lot of damage can happen um before that prayer is answered, before God does act. You know, for example, um, um by the time God might act and say, Change your alcoholic father, the children might already be alcoholics. But before he stops the violence, the kids may already be going, you know, the wrong way. Um, I find that really difficult to cope with. You might like to comment on that.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, that's incredibly difficult to cope with. Um, I mean, basically, if if, if I'm
1: uh,
0: going out sharing the gospel with people, and somebody who's not a Christian says to me, "Why does God allow suffering?" Um, I, I want to be very careful how I answer that question. So I'm answering you in a roundabout way here. Um, and I'm not suggesting that you're not a Christian either. I don't know whether you are or not, but I'm not suggesting that. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but if I'm asked why does God allow suffering like that, the first thing I usually say is I don't know. So I don't know why God in, in any specific individual situation uh, allows those things to happen. So I, I'm not God... And I don't know why and I can't really answer that. So um, there's so many horrible things that happen and I guess you don't have to live long in life before such things do happen to us. So uh, I do university ministry and when I'm speaking to people in their 20s, often nothing much like that has happened to most of them, but I know it will. And uh, they will ask those sorts of questions and, and be praying long to God and be wondering why he hasn't answered their prayers. Basically, I don't know why, um, I think the things that I've said in my talk obviously I think are all true. So I, I, I want to look to the cross and that God knows suffering. Uh, I want to be reminded that he knows why he's allowed those things to happen. The only other thing for me, and this might be personally for me, um, I'm probably more of a negative person than a positive person I guess and I'm very much aware of my my own sin and so I, I just go from day to day thinking... Um, I'm amazed that God hasn't smashed me in judgement. So a lot of the things that we see in the world around us that go wrong are due to our own sinfulness and Romans 1.18 following says that God's punishment on us is to allow those things to happen. So it's awful but I think if you have a a heavy perspective of our sinfulness and the rightness of God's judgement then as awful as those situations are I think they'll actually make more sense, not less. It so doesn't really answer your question but it's a partial answer. I always find it ironic, uh, like you talked about that reporter and the tsunami. It's always ironic when secular people complain to God um, and what do you believe in him or not. But it, it, um, it's kind of a comment for you to extrapolate on. One of the dangers is Habakkuk here is, you know, saying, "Why, God?" And in, in the Psalms, people, you know, um, oh, I love the Psalms. David, they they kind of shake their fist at God and say, "Why is this happening?" The danger is that because um, these people are still acknowledging God, the danger is when you stop acknowledging God and say, "Well, it, you're not doing anything, so really you don't exist." Mm. Um, and there's, I guess there's a fine line. Even with, I find in our own walk, we 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 can run a fine line sometimes between um, complaining to God and then just giving up. That's yeah. Some, some general comments on uh, well, I, I tend to think um, I wouldn't want to say this at the time, but I, I tend to think that books like Revelation are saying that when terrible natural disasters like that happen, it's almost like a, a very loud wake-up call from God, warning off the worse final judgment to come. And and I think often good things do come off it that people do start looking towards God and sit up and take notice. I, I was reading a book recently by an American Jewish Christian talking about 9-11 and saying how it was amazing after 9-11 how everyone was talking about God and um, all that sort of thing, but there wasn't repentance. Um, So you'd hope that terrible things like that would lead people to repent. Uh, It does often lead them to talk about God and think about God, which is a really good thing. And I, I guess as the church then we have a narrow window of opportunity at that time to sensitively step up and say the hard things needed in the hope that it will actually grant people repentance towards God. I was going to say, it's hard stuff, isn't it? I, I, when I teach the Old Testament to my Bible college students, um, I have a running joke as we go through each book of the prophets. Have a guess what the theme of this book is. Judgment. Um, not like there's no judgment in the New Testament but my students from different denominations have always been telling me that they almost never hear about God's judgement at church. And if that's the case, I don't know what Bible they're using because it's in almost every book of the Bible.
1: Yeah, just another question for me. I really appreciate your honest answers. Um, I'm just wondering, how long do we actually keep on praying when it seems that um, God is just saying, well, no or not yet? For example, I don't know what you think of this, but I've prayed that God would would rain out the Mardi Gras, for example, to send a big thunderstorm—not to kill anybody, but just really, you know, do something that can't happen—and he sends sunshine. You know, so do I keep praying that God will not bless what is we know is contrary to His will? Yeah. Uh, just as an example, and same with same-sex marriages. If that goes through, I mean, I hope here everyone is praying that that won't go through. Um, how long do we keep praying about those things before we say, well, obviously, God, you're not going to answer the prayer uh, by putting these things down. You must have something else in mind. Do you hear my question?
0: Yeah, I I do. Um, You're all asking very good questions. Um, All hard ones. They're they're good. Um, The example I would think of with a prayer like that is when you're praying for somebody in your family who's not yet a Christian. Um, So in my extended Jewish family uh, there, there is one other Christian in my family and, and that's amazing in a, an extended Jewish family but almost all my family is not Christian and so if I think, well, how long do I keep praying for them or, or your examples, um, uh, again, I, I can't really answer it but I would have thought that you just keep praying ad infinitum because I, I'm not God, I don't know what his answers are. Um, if there's a clear answer, no, I think that would become apparent through events, I guess, um, or if there's a clear answer, yes. So if the person be- becomes a Christian, then I can stop praying that they become a Christian. But otherwise, I would have thought you'd just keep praying ad infinitum because we don't have God's perspective. So with my family members, he may save them at the last minute. I don't know. I just need to keep praying then. Once
2: you've been praying for someone for a long time and you've asked the Lord to save that person, and you're believing that to happen, isn't it right just to keep thanking him that he's already doing it and believing for an answer to come? It's okay. in his hands and trusting him.
0: Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying and um, yeah, I've I've got many Christian friends I think who would who would pray like that. Um, I, I personally don't agree with that for for these reasons, that Again, I think I don't know what God will do except what he tells me in his word. So um, my mother is not yet a Christian. I pray for her constantly that she'll become a Christian. I, I think I, have, I can't know whether she will become a Christian or not. There is nothing in the Bible that tells me that one way or the other. So I'll keep praying, but I can believe, if I want, that she'll become a Christian as much as I like, but... I think that doesn't mean anything much myself because it's completely up to God, not up to me. There's nothing I can do. It's entirely in God's hands. Which to me is a comfort um, and I'll keep praying to God but I actually wouldn't think then, I wouldn't thank God that he's answered the prayer or anything like that because the answer could be yes or no and I don't know which one it is. So,
2: okay if I make a comment to some of the questions. Um, Just um, like with the when do we give up? um, It says in the word that God doesn't want anybody lost. He doesn't give up on me, so I can't give up on praying. And and the thing about the you know with the uh, with like the mardi gras thing, um, Jesus tells us to bless our enemies. So I'd be more inclined to be asking God to bless them, bless them with salvation. Um, bless them with the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin and you know, all the rest of it. Mm. Um, I know down the west coast we all get together to pray, and, and one bloke prayed that because that come out to Christmas, there's a big drinking area down there with a lot, lot of drinking and, and alcoholism. And um, one bloke prayed prayed that the the labels would fall off the beer bottles, so they wouldn't be able to sell them. And I don't know if you remember that's was either one or two Christmases ago. You might remember it actually happened. It was on the news. I don't know if anybody saw that. (laughs) They had to recall about, I don't know, however many thousand bottles the labels had fallen off. (laughs) So it's always worth a go, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: um, I I, I very much agree with your first comment. Um, I, I, I half agree with the comment about the Mardi Gras. So, yeah, I think ultimately we want people to be saved. There's no one sin that's worse than another sin. Um, we want all people to be saved. That's what we should um, most of all be praying for. I guess you have to weigh that up as well with the um, damage that can be done in society broadly. And so I'd be looking at uh, things to do with um, gay marriage and stuff like that. And uh, my understanding is that uh, the gay community actually have all their rights already in that respect. And uh, so that it's more of a kind of propaganda tool to push for gay marriage. And my concern about gay marriage doesn't have much to do with people who are gay. It's more to do with the effect that that has on families and society in Australia. So oh, I would pray against things like that um, for the sake of the society in which we live. Um, but of course, first, yeah, to pray for their salvation.